If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is a mostly listener-backed show, and we are still calling in for more support so we can reach our Patreon goal. To join us starting at a gift of $2, you can head to patreon.com slash greendreamer. Support for this episode also comes from Tonelay, a maker-led community that creates clothing, accessories, and homewares from reclaimed materials. Tonelay centers people historically sidelined by the fashion industry as leaders and creators, and collaboration, reciprocity, and justice are some of their core values that I feel aligned with. Right now, I'm particularly looking forward to their collaboration with Cambodian-Australian designer Natalie Lee, which will be a small capsule of hand-woven, plant-dyed clothing made with regenerative fibers like kapok from trees that grow right around the weaving center that they work with in Cambodia. To check out Tonle, you can head to tonle.com. That's spelled T-O-N-L-E dot com. Again, T-O-N-L-E dot com. These ingredients are, are ceremonial pieces, meaning every dish, every ingredient that we put out has a story, has a connection to the land. Today we have with us Brian Yazi, also known as Yazi the Chef from Denhotso, Arizona, and based out of St. Paul, Minnesota. Yazi's mission is specifically working with and for the betterment of tribal communities, wellness, and health through indigenous foods. He travels internationally and is available for catering, private dinners, pop-up dinners, chef demos, and cooking classes, collaborations, and presentations on indigenous food sovereignty. Brian, we're so honored to have you here. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to share to share my narrative as an indigenous chef. Of course. So I'd love for you to first give us a little peek into your background growing up, how cooking came to be such an important part of your life, and also your teenage years that eventually led you to immerse yourself into the culinary world. I, coming from a single parent household, my mom, you know, she was pretty much my mom and my dad. My dad passed away when I was at the age of five from heart disease. So with the, the youngest out of eight siblings, 
I was always at home, right? And my older siblings will be moving out, you know, going to college or uh, moving to the city off the reservation. So I was always left behind at home with my mom. And I remember to stay vividly. My mom would come home from a, a double shift most of the time. And instead of coming home to relax, she would go straight into the kitchen and cook us a hot meal, regardless of the day and time. Sometimes at midnight, she would come home and cook us a meal. And I was shared that cook and save my life. I grew up in a single parent household, like I said, but my mom always showed me the unconditional love. So there was also the right and wrong of teaching, but at the same time, without the father figure, looking up to my older brothers and uncles, most of them lived a negative lifestyle. So I, I approached that lifestyle and I took off on that avenue at a young age. I went to two or three detention centers for, for kids on the reservation. And I went through four different high schools on and off the reservation and all into my adolescent years going to county jails in Phoenix, Arizona. So when I share with kids that cook and save my life, I would receive phone calls from my sisters when I'm on the street stays at a time on and off the reservation. And this was before prep meals were a trend. And I would come home, cook a meal or two, you know, put all frozen meats, uh, frozen vegetables in the freezer just so my sisters can reheat. And that was their way of checking on me to see how I was doing. And to me, that, that, that was brilliant. Just that family love of running the streets, me doing what I did back then, but always checking on my sisters and my mom to see how they were doing. I went through um, stealing cars, chop shop, getting shot at, getting stabbed at. So I always shared that cooking saved my life. And not just that, but in my early 20s, I was blessed to meet my wife and being with her for a couple of years, she's seen the lifestyle that I lived and she gave me the ultimatum of being in a serious relationship or to move on and continue living a single life and keep running the streets. So besides cooking, saving my life, my wife for sure, you know, gave me the ultimatum to come up in a positive environment and to, to look at my, my talent and my potential as a blessing. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing your story. So in your first semester at culinary school, your instructors told you to find a niche, and this eventually led you to focus on Native foods. But what revelations did you make along the way in regards to Native American ingredients and their relationship with cuisines around the world today? I remember my first semester. It wasn't between instructors, but it was more between a challenge between my peers and colleagues and most of them were inspiring chefs, and some were already working in the culinary industry that just needed to learn some fundamentals of cooking or receive a certificate to move on to a higher position. So our challenge was to pick one cuisine throughout the world and to try, to try and perfect one dish from that cuisine at the end of the semester. So we'd get extra credits or points, right? Something to brag about. So I was looking at Japanese cuisine. I was looking at Southern food cultures. I was looking at a lot of outdoor cooking, Argentina, all these different landscapes and cultures that cook outside. And I realized that looking at all these textbooks, looking at these different cookbooks across the world, I realized that not only have my Navajo ancestors, but the indigenous people across the Americas, not only have they survived a colonization or genocide, but still has the ingredients as well. You know, you want to have French cuisine or Italian cuisine without corn, bean and squash. And as a chef, it, it's like, what was the original cuisine before these were introduced? So I started looking at that, and that blew my mind. And the first dish I made for my challenge was a Three Sisters salad. Three Sisters is more of an overall view of indigenous culture, right, across the Americas, meaning 
There's over 560 tribes alone in North America, in the States. And each tribe or region has their own type of corn, bean, and squash culture. And most of those products are surrounding ceremonial use and surrounding moving and planting and harvesting with the season and with the full moon. So the ecology around Mother Earth is basically what I found out. And that blew my mind. So there was no cookbook I could find. There was a lot of fusion for sure, but it wasn't specifically focused on indigenous food. So I started researching more of the Southwest food culture and the Midwest food culture. And in 2013, my second semester, I believe, is when I met a guy named Sean Sherman, now known as the sous chef. And I've been working with him from 2013 to 2016 when I graduated. And while, while I was working with him, I came up with the term cooking in two worlds. That was my avenue and my lane during that time, because when I was in culinary school, you know, I would work with dairy, gluten, processed sugar, all type of ingredients across the world. And when I stepped off campus to work with Sean or the sous chef team, I have to exclude all that out of my mind and work with only decolonized ingredients. So that was a challenge for me. And writing a small essay in a project for one of my language classes, I came up with the term cooking in two worlds. And when I graduated in 2016, Sean and I had a conversation and you know, he gave me the blessing to actually um, branch out on my own because he's seen the potential in me that already had a presence on social media with the work that I was doing while I was still in culinary school. Hmm. So just to clarify, you said you found that a lot of ingredients that are actually indigenous to North America are currently integral to a lot of cuisines that are not from North America. So like Italian cuisine, for example. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, it's not just North America, but looking at the Americas across the board without the state lines, without the borders, but looking at actually their languages and their local food cultures, their hyper-local food cultures, if you may. And just starting off from that, right, and then looking at the larger scale of the of the tribes across the Americas, knowing the, the Pacific Northwest, the ingredients and food culture are different from the Seminole tribes in the southeast part of um, North America. And then learning the landscape of farming and cultivating the Southwest is definitely different from the atmosphere and the elevation levels in the Midwest area. So to me... It was not just being in the kitchen, also being in the landscape and learning the, these different values of ingredients that, that we create and put onto plates. And the, definitely from there, I know I realized that a simple ingredient like tomatoes coming from the Americas and it wouldn't, what was Italian or French cuisine without these ingredients, right? So that, that was my introduction to indigenous food. And today we know that Native Americans and Alaska Natives disproportionately face higher levels of various chronic illnesses, general distress, and self-harm and suicide rates. And our health, including our mental health, is hugely influenced by food and nourishment. So how would you contextualize these broad health concerns with the historical context of colonization and how that transformed Native foodways? This definitely speaks to the project that I am a part of here at Gatherings Cafe, which is located inside the Minneapolis American Indian Center. Uh, the project that we have here, hashtag Feeding Our Elders, we started last year in mid-March. And the former executive chef here, Ben Shindu, you know, is a good friend of mine. So before I took over, he reached out to me. 
after I self-quarantined for a couple of weeks. My, my catering events, my, my presentations were all put on halt due to the pandemic. So I was able to, j- to jump into um, the kitchen here at the cafe last year in mid-March. And we started with emptying out all the pantry, all, all the fridge and freezer, and we started collecting more indigenous ingredients. And it just fell into place with the philosophy that I have, not just reintroducing but bringing that healthy comfort food of indigenous food. And our demographic, our focus here is working with indigenous elders in the Twin Cities area. Those individuals whose, whose immune systems may be compromised or who may be disabled and not able to drive or walk to a grocery store to, to fend for themselves. So we started with about 250 meals a day, and now we're down to about 135 meals at least twice a week. So my reason of why reintroducing this type of atmosphere and ingredients to our indigenous community was because with our indigenous elders, they're still suffering from a historical trauma, whether if it's be um, residential school or boarding school or just a household that they grew up in with commodity food programs. And learning these, I first hit the ground running with decolonized menu without using gluten, dairy, or processed sugar, right? And, and I realized um, in 2016, when I branched out on my own, when I received my associate's degree, when I started my, my um, YouTube channel, I realized that after traveling to so many tribal communities that most of our tribal communities are still in a third world poverty status, regardless if it's in urban spaces or if it's in a rural area like reservations. These tribal um, communities were still in this type of poverty. And the reason is the food access that we have. Right. Not a lot of tribal communities have access to organic or decolonized menus. So I had to take a step back from my work of decolonizing my menu fully to implementing at least 50 to 75 percent indigenous ingredients and making comfort food healthy. So that's what we're doing here here at the cafe. We're implementing at least 50 to 75 percent indigenous ingredients. And these ingredients we are sourcing from tribal resources like temporary beans. So that, that's just the type of work that we have here. And it's just slowly reintroducing these type of ingredients to our elders because for me, it falls into food waste as well. For example, when we for, first started this project for two weeks, we did the colonized menu and there was a lot of food waste coming, coming back. And the reason is because our elders are not familiar with ingredients that are just right below our feet. Right. And and so we had to slowly reintroduce these ingredients and de- depending what region we're in, which is Minnesota here. So we do a lot of wild rice, a lot of walleye and a lot of berries, you know, here with Ojibwe culture, which is basically the same berry sauce. I remember one question that your colleague, Chef Sean Sherman, raised when I interviewed him was, why is it that we can find cuisines from all over the world in our major cities, but not the cuisines that are actually native to those very regions? That was really memorable for me because I think it's so reflective of our general disconnect from our native landscapes. And it's so true that the average non-Native American's lack of relationship to these landscapes is reflected in our food system and our lack of knowledge and awareness of native foodways. 10, 15 years ago, you want to hear about any native American chefs or you want to, you want to see the trend of food sovereignty or, or now you have celebrity chefs who are non-natives using the term food as medicine, right? For profit. But 10 to 15 years ago, you, you weren't able to find an indigenous cook or chef, but now you do. And but before that, you had the food scholars, you had the farmers, you had the seed keepers who were holding up those integrity of food sovereignty. But it wasn't until, I believe, 
cooks and chefs who came into the platform to to not not just highlight but to utilize indigenous ingredients and and to show the world right but at the same time these ingredients are are ceremonial pieces meaning every dish every ingredient that we put out has a story it has a connection to the land for me looking at just just like what you said with your interview with sean right it's always been stuck in my head when i first heard him say it is you can step in one block radius in any city and you can find all type of cuisine except the indigenous cuisine right and and that that, that is a heartbreaking but at the same time for us we cannot romanticize around indigenous culture right so we have to do it in a ceremony way there are restaurants that are opening this year, you know, and some of them are decolonized menus. But at the same time, how are we serving indigenous ingredients and decolonized menu in a space where individuals are able to still serve and drink alcohol as well? To me, that is not decolonizing. To me, that is taking four steps back from, from what has already been built. So for me, moving forward, I have to be careful with the moves that I make, meaning everything I do is always centered around community. For example, here at the cafe, like I said, we're, I'm trying to step out of the kitchen more. And this year, we just started a farm at a local Native American apartment complex called Little Earth um, United Tribes. And it's one of the biggest urban apartment complex in North America for Native American population. So they have a youth program that runs a farm right, right in their um, neighborhood in South Minneapolis. So we were able to claim a spot this year about about eight foot by 25 foot plot. And we, we planted a lot of heirloom ingredients from throughout the Americas. For example, uh, we have Hopi black beans that are, are growing. We have Irikaiwa beans that are growing. We have Oneida white corn. We have Bear Island flint corn. We have Fuchsia squash. We have Blue Hubbard squash. The only thing that's not non-native that we're growing is the Russian sunflower, which is, you know, gets about anywhere from two to three feet size in a circle with the head. And for us, using that product is just to help the, the, the soil regenerate as well, using ingredients like sunflower and bergamot and hyssop. So it, it's definitely returning to the landscape and and, and not, not just that, but it's also claiming our space in the kitchen, right? And for example, with the kitchen staff that I have here, we have a gender and non-binary balanced atmosphere, meaning you want to hear me yelling in the kitchen or tossing pans around or trying to put a cook or, or a chef in check. So it's more of a verbal communication before anything else. And there's no maybe scientific way of knowing this because it's food is so experiential and even spiritual and emotional. But I wonder whether ingredients that are native to a particular region that have thrived and evolved together in the landscape might end up being able to harmonize better together on the plate as well. So it's kind of like tasting the landscape. And at least visually, I know that designers and artists often will take inspiration for color palettes from colors derived from certain bioregional landscapes, whether it's desert hues or vibrant tropical colors and so on. So I don't know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how the tastes of perhaps bioregional ingredients might come together in unique and harmonious ways as well for the palate. I know um, Sean has touched on this situation before, and I can definitely echo that as well. For example, one of my favorite dish that I have done, and one of my popular catering dish is a um, sage and maple glazed salmon with wild rice pilaf, having a seasonal vegetables, like if it's um, radishes or if it's sunchokes, 
sunflower petals, if it's um, parsnip or carrots. And then I have a, um, a salsa that I go on top, which is a cactus pad or a palace salsa with uh, New Mexico green chili. And since I'm in the Midwest, when I'm making hot sauce, I, I kind of add a bit of honey or agave syrup to kind of tone down that spiciness. And and to me, that dish represents my my, my philosophy of intertribal foodways. For example, here in the Midwest, one of the recent dish that we served the elders was smoked walleye. And walleye is indigenous to um, the Midwest. And also the specific type of walleye we get is from the uh, Red Lake Nation fishery, which is about three hours north of Minneapolis on the Red Lake Nation reservation. Just looking at these type of products is basically not just reintroducing, but being creative with it. And the meals that we provided last week was all collected within a I would say what's in a um, 100-mile radius. So walleye coming from the Midwest area, from Red Lake, then we had watercress that we just foraged with one of the one of the local sacred the Dakota sites. And uh, we also got some lilac, you know, which is, you know, some species are not indigenous to North America, but it's fragrant. You can smell, you can smell the fragrance miles away when it's in season. We also got some um, the burdock root. We're looking at different types of stuff like that, uh, wild onions, ramps. So all these ingredients were put into a wild rice bowl or a wild rice pilaf, and we, we smoked the, the walleye. And that, that definitely gave a flavor of what is Minnesota food, what is Minnesota indigenous food culture. Well, I've read that you've had some interesting run-ins on social media, and I think you mentioned this earlier, being blocked by certain celebrity chefs revolving around their native-inspired recipes. So what can you tell us about those interactions and relatedly how non-native peoples can engage with indigenous cuisines and foodways in ways that are rooted in reciprocity and deep respect? For sure. You know, food, food is love. It's our first language as kids, right? Coming from a, a, a liquid diet to a solid diet. And then as an elder returning to the spirit world or heaven, whichever religious you practice, you're going from solid food to, to liquid diet again. So food is love. Food is unity for sure. But at the same time, food can be dangerous. It can be a weapon. I mean, look, look at indigenous people in Palestine. Look at indigenous people here in North America. Look at the genocide that's still going on with the food wars, right? And here in the in North America, for example, with my tribe, Navajo, the only reason why a majority of the Navajo community members surrendered to the U.S. government back in 1850, 1860 was due to food war, meaning tribal members weren't able to um, surrender until the corn crops were burned, the wild game were chased off, the outdoor cooking spaces and the homes were burned down or torched. So just looking at the, these, these type of food wars is, is definitely something that's still going on. And not, not just in community spaces, but also on social media. And that's reflecting off of um, 
celebrity chefs, right? And most of them are non-indigenous. They have, they're romanticizing around indigenous food culture now, seeing it as a trend or a fad. But for us and for myself, it's not a fad or a trend. It's just something that had always been here, but it's just now being recognized, right? And it's one thing that clarifies that people see me or Sean as the leading food activists or the, or, or the leading people in indigenous food movement, right? But but no, you know, we, there's a lot more people who needs to be recognized, who needs to be seen. So we're definitely just some of those people who are who are connecting these boundaries and connecting these um, these networks. You know, so my question to um, non-native cooks and chefs who are romanticizing around these ingredients is definitely very dangerous and I also see it as a genocide that's happening now. And like I said, um, though there's a couple of celebrities that I bumped heads with and who end up blocking me. The reason for that is they were using indigenous ingredients and specific ingredients and highlighting those as romanticizing and, and profiting off of, right? But not having, not actually connecting with those tribal resources and not returning or collaborating with these farmers or seed keepers that these non-indigenous chefs are collecting ingredients from. So there's that disconnection. So people like me, you know, it's definitely stressing off of that. But we're also trying to keep it positive and being influenced on social media and talking talking about the awareness that comes around indigenous food culture. Mm. So at this point, there are slowly more and more indigenous restaurants opening up across North America. Although, like you mentioned earlier, you have some concerns about this happening. So I would love to hear you speak to the nuance here, as in, isn't it a positive thing for people to be able to support native restaurants as a way to support native food ways? Or what are some other ways that people can connect with and help to revitalize native ingredients and cuisines? For me, the reason why I stepped away from doing the colonized menu was because I feel like the resources of indigenous ingredients are not where it should be right now. Meaning if I fully decolonize my menu and then opening with other restaurants in the in North America at the same time, we will definitely exhaust the resources within a year or two. And to me, I don't think that's the way to go because, like I said, you no know, every every ingredient, every plate is a ceremonial use. So, so for me, I would say about five to seven years. You know, we would have tribal communities would have their own farms, have their own gardens, regardless if it's in a on a reservation or or in or urban spaces. So once these farms or um, plots are created, not only will these farms and, um, and, and grassroots individuals, well, not only will they able to, to feed their community, but they'd be able to share those, those ingredients with cafes and uh, restaurants in their region, and also to represent their, their local, local hyper um, food culture. So to me, that's my reason of stepping back from decolonized menu and slowly introducing at least 50 to 60% indigenous ingredients. And just like I said, about 10, 15 years ago, you know, you would, you would have never heard about indigenous cook, but you would be hearing about seed keepers. You would be hearing about food scholars in colleges, universities talking about food sovereignty. You know, so I, I feel like right now is the time to actually be out in the landscape, regardless if you're indigenous or not. We're all indigenous to a certain place and time. And I'm very thankful to have allies who are supporting my movement and not just that, but allies who are using tribal ingredients 
and actually they are connected to travel resources. If you're making profit off of ingredient, you know, percentage will go back to the travel resource you're receiving from. And not just that, but also hiring indigenous cooks and chefs within your space when, when you want to highlight indigenous products or indigenous you know, food culture. Mm. So basically, because native ecologies had been overextracted or destroyed from the history of colonization and native foodways being destroyed, we have to first heal native landscapes before we sort of make it a priority to direct these tribal resources to maybe fancy restaurants where non-native people or people who are economically privileged might be able to enjoy the native cuisines when native communities can't even feed yourselves with native ingredients yet. Am I interpreting that correctly? To definitely hit the spot with that. For example, if we have decolonized menus and restaurants opening, the average tribal community member will not be able to afford an appetizer or one of the menu dishes, right? Because all these are tribal source and organic ingredients, right? So if you're looking at that, the only demographic or clients or customers you would have are non-Indigenous people who are able to afford these type of menus. So it's, like I said, it's just being careful with that and, and just, just knowing knowing the time frame of reintroducing these ingredients and knowing where the community is at. And so, of course, looking ahead, your exciting new project will be the Yaz podcast, which is launching in July, and its mission is to share Indigenous narratives. So on this note, what sorts of solutions or messages do you think have been left out of dominant discourses around improving our food system and the future of food with the marginalization of Indigenous perspectives? And what can we look forward to on your show? For sure. So with my podcast, it's... um basically sharing indigenous narrative, right? Regardless if it's science, if it's culture, if it's sports, politics, whatever it may be, just sharing more of those narratives coming from an indigenous perspective, right? And for example, with NASA, you know, with the recent launch, one of the leading team members for that was Aaron Yazi, you know, from the Navajo Nation. He created some of these drill bits and some of these parts that that were able to go onto uh, Mars with with the with the rove and with these transformations of what's going on on Mars, right? So having an indigenous person like that to, to break barriers to me it is not just beautiful, but it's resilient. And that's stepping back to World War One or two, right? With the um, Navajo co talkers or with, with the um, tribal co talkers across North America who were able to help. U.S. government beat certain demographics or certain people due to using the Navajo or the native language that was kept from indigenous people when boarding schools or residential schools were created. So to me, I feel like it's that full circle of resiliency and sharing a beautiful food culture, but always having indigenous person leading that perspective and leading that narrative it's just you know to me it's interesting to see that right now because when i'm part of um, a couple of organizations and nonprofits, i see a lot of um, leading positions that are led by non-native people right and and of course they're allies they know they would like to help but at the same time we have indigenous people who are who have the potential or who would like to learn to lead in those spaces so to me it's just not just decolonize the menu, but decolonizing our um, our language and decolonizing our um, avenues of how we navigate our indigenous existence. Thank you so much. We're nearing the end of our time together, but what else would you like to share that's on your mind right now? And what cause to action do you have for our listeners? 
for sure. I'm very active on social media. I respond to anyone and everyone, right? And like, like you said, uh, one of my new projects is on the Yaws podcast, which is airing on the weekend of, of my birthday. And also looking into the reopening of the cafe here in mid-July. And and also being part of a, um, a, a campaign project for the Navajo Nation for my community of the Hoso. You know, we have a, a COVID-19 relief project that, that we have been working on through a, a GoFundMe campaign. So myself and two, two ladies from my community were leading that project. And we just did a propane distribution for elders and for families who are unable to support themselves during the pandemic. And now our, our next um, project is um, Helping my helping our community start up uh, community gardens, reaching out to um, seed, seed savers and seed keepers, and, and and flooding our community with all type of seeds, so that the, the youth programs during the summer can help the community members plant and grow um, ingredients. You know, and that that falls back to sustainability. You know, with my community. They just built a, tra- a trading post or a gas station about two years ago. And the last gas station or a grocery store we had was about 75 years ago. And that burned down. And ever since then, there was no type of gas station or grocery stores around my community. So you'd have to drive at least four to five minutes to an hour to just refill on gas or even to just to hit up the gas station for snacks or fresh produce, right? So, so yes. So to me, it's one of the things that we're working on is a um, Denahutso COVID-19 relief fund. And if anyone's interested in supporting that on my Instagram profile, you know, I have a couple links on there as well. Also my, my Facebook profile and also Gatherings Cafe, you know, we're, we're still feeding our elders and we'll probably go at least one more year. We have an awesome support from um, World Central Kitchen which is founded and leading by um, Chef Jose Andreas. So they were able to, to meet us here a couple of weeks ago, with some of the, the leading team members at World Central Kitchen. So they're able to see what ingredients that we serve and the demographic that we serve. So we definitely have that support as well. You know, and if anyone's interested, you know, definitely reach out to me and with any of these projects that anyone would like to help. What is an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Social media profile to follow, I would say um, I Collective, the, the letter I, dash, and the word collective. It, it's a nonprofit grassroots um, collective of sea keepers, farmers, food scholars, chefs, cooks. We're on the front line of calling out, call it basically bringing awareness to the misappropriation of indigenous culture, especially around, around culinary and food, food sovereignty. And there's a Navajo chef by the name of Freddie Batui. He, he worked, he's a main chef at the Native Museum in Washington, D.C. And he's coming out with the cookbook in, I believe, in November. O- October and November is called The New Native Kitchen. 
So it's, it's just a cookbook of and the fusion indigenous ingredients, right? And the work that he's been doing, you know, he's been doing it for years, at least eight to 10 years. So I'm very excited to see what he would have in his cookbook. And the other person I'd recommend is Tashia Hart, who is a Red Lake Nation Ojibwe, who's a very good colleague of mine, a good, a good mentor of mine. And she has a book coming out called The Goodberry. And the goodberry in Ojibwe language means uh, manumen, and manumen is wild rice. You know, so that cookbook has over 75 recipes of nothing but wild rice and dessert, savory dishes, entree, you know, whatever it may be. It'll be the first of its kind of focusing on just one ingredient, but how to manipulate and how to be creative with one ingredient in so many ways. And for me, I'm working on two cookbooks. One is part of the cafe, um, the hashtag feeding your elders. So um, we basically, you know, have over 200 recipes that we're, I'm going to help narrow down and, and create a cookbook focused on what we fed the elders during the pandemic. And also, you know, using a lot of natural sweeteners in, in those situations. And the second cookbook I'm working on is um, the, the term that I shared with you, cooking in two worlds. And that's just slowly reintroducing indigenous ingredients and highlighting non-native ingredients that are being um, distributed or are being cared for by, by travel resources. So um, that's some of the projects that I'm a part of, affiliated with, and I can definitely recommend for sure. Really exciting. This conversation is making me hungry. Um, my <laughs> second final question for you is, what do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? Who else would do the type of work if I stopped? There's a lot of people, there's a lot of inspired chefs for sure. But the networking platform that I have, I, I cannot shy away from the awareness that it has brought and the requests that it has brought with media or even with any, any type of um, resources. And, and to me, it's just being humble, just, just knowing, knowing where you come from, right? And, and, and know, knowing the community that you're serving and to not be blindsided by, by fame or ego, right? So it, it, it's always, end of the day for me, it's always making sure are the elders fed. If it's negative or positive feedback, you know, I always welcome that as a chef because that will only hone my knives and better my skills in the kitchen. Mm. And what makes you most hopeful for our world at the moment? Definitely unity. Well, like I was saying, the, the presence of North America right now is definitely diverse, right? Like I said, we're all indigenous to a certain place and time, but we just have to focus on where we are at now. And especially with indigenous people leading, for example, here in northern Minnesota, you know, we have the pipe, line three pipeline that's trying to go through from Canada to the Midwest area into the East Coast. And in the, in the northern Minnesota area, it's going through one of the wild rice lakes, one of the original tribal wild rice lakes. So it, it's not if, but it's when the pipeline breaks, right? It not only will it affect the tribal community, but will affect the ecosystem and, and the wild rice that people depend on within that landscape. Well, Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Brian's work, you can head to www.yazitheshef.com and you can also follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Yazi underscore the chef, on Facebook at Yazi the chef and on YouTube at Yazi the chef TV. All of this will be linked in our show notes that you can find at greendreamer.com. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate everything that you're doing for your leadership and this opportunity to speak with you. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I would say take a moment. If you're a cook or a chef, culinarian, take a moment, step out of the kitchen. Step out of the kitchen. I know most kitchens don't have windows. So step out of the kitchen, look at the landscape. 
right now, you know, you hear, you hear the term and the trend, victory gardens, community gardens. Go outside, you know, find a plot, you know, connect with your neighbors, put your, put your hands in the soil, put your hands in the dirt, knowing where food comes from, right? Farm to table. So right now, that is one of the big awareness that a lot of cooks and chefs are bringing up, especially from an indigenous perspective. And definitely step out of the kitchen for a day or two. You know, help one of the community gardens, you know, help help distribute meals, you know, whatever you may do. To, to me, that is just a full circle of life. It's just stepping out of your comfort zone most of the time and, and you know, finding a new balance in life. This marks the end of this episode of Green Dreamer. To support our independent media platform and to support us to bring more conversations like this to you, starting at a gift of $2, you can head to patreon.com slash green dreamer. Today's musical offering is Where We Belong by Inanna. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production intern is Spencer Carter. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for listening in and for your support. And I will catch you soon in the next episode.